Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I am joined by one of my clinical mentors before I moved out to the States, Gordon Bosworth. In this episode, we'll be getting into how to be effective as a clinician supporting Olympic athletes at Olympic Games, how to conduct yourself professionally when doing second opinion work or consultancy to teams, and we'll also get into Gordon's personal approach as to how he approaches athlete care and performance. Before we get stuck into the episode, I just want to ask if you, the listeners, would hit subscribe, rate the show, and leave us a review. We want to grow Informed Performance as a podcast and an industry information or insight resource. So the more traction this show gets, the more we'll be able to expand our efforts. Anyway, without further ado, here is the conversation between myself and Gordon Bosworth. Gordon, welcome to the show, mate. It's great to have you on. Yeah. Thanks, Andy. Good, good to be on. To um, just to create some context for um, uh, before we get into the conversation, I think it's really important that I outline who Gordon is and the relationship between myself and Gordon, um, just to create that context. Like I said, so before I moved to the states, I would routinely visit Gordon in his clinic after watching him practice and teach on a course I'd been on, and he was very open, let me come to his business and uh, spend multiple days with him on a routine basis, shadowing him as a clinician. And I think, you know, learning and observing from his style, I can honestly say that I witnessed some of the most effective care um, and dramatic changes in a patient or athlete's uh, presentation um, when I was there live. And I think when you're around a clinician who can achieve great results like that with a patient, You've, you've got to question what is it they're doing, how does it work, and if, if you're fortunate like I was, try and spend as much time with that person as possible to try and um, to unlock some of their thinking as such. So that, that's one of the reasons I've got Gordon on today as well. Um, but yeah, like I said, luckily for me, Gordon is very open, and with the greatest respect, I see him as one of the people that has, has truly mentored me and definitely changed the way that I've approached being a clinician. So it's a, it's a great privilege from a personal and a professional perspective to, to have you on the show, mate. Thanks very much, Andy. It's a very, uh, very um, bit of live up to that stop that that intro, hadn't I? <laughs> and at disclosure, he didn't pay me for that. That was a very genuine, uh, a genuine intro there. So uh, yeah, I do mean it, mate. Thank you. It's kind. Just so that the um, the listeners have got wider context on you, can you just kind of give us a bit of an outline as to, I guess, what you've done in your career um, through to the current day? Yeah, no problem. Um, well, I. Started life in the Royal Air Force, joined as a physical training instructor initially, and then trained as a remedial gymnast and then a physiotherapist. Um, and I graduated in 1983. That's an awful long time ago, isn't it? Um, <laughs> went on to commission and became what's called a physical education and rehabilitation officer and spent 16 years uh, working in that environment, which was awesome. I've always been involved in sport my entire my entire life since I could walk pretty much, and um, and my experiences through the military were were very interesting. Time at Headley Court, time at Chesington, time at several hospitals, two wars. So it was um, an interesting time. And, uh, and then I, re- I, re- I left the Air Force in 1992, went into private practice, didn't do a brilliant job of that in the first couple of years, and then decided. Uh, then I was given a role at uh, the police rehab centre as their head of rehab in the middle 90s, which was really cool. And at the same time, started to really for- get my way into performance-based sport. Um, and I'd always tried to work in my own time um, with various football teams of lower leagues, just trying to gain experience in anything, everything I could really to build my my portfolio or my credibility. So. Then I moved really from 95, 96 onwards, things started to change. Then around my first big break came in 97, I suppose, when I managed to bully my way into an Olympic sport, um, beating down Richard Budget's door, who was then the director of the BOA's medical team. And I constantly kept bashing away at him and Northwick Park. And that's where I met uh, your friend and colleague, Ben, Ben Ashworth, very briefly. And so, um, yeah, I finally got that that opportunity. And when you get an opportunity, you have to take it. So I ended up doing my first Olympic Games in 1998 in Nagano. Um, 
And as it happened, the team I worked with, I did a multi-role there, but it was mostly with bobsleigh. And um, we managed to win a medal, which was the first bobsleigh medal since about 1964, I think. So that was pretty cool. And then really moved on um, from there through various different sports, which I'm sure we'll talk about down the line. Um, and um, decided eventually that I wanted to go into private practice. So after I sort of traveled the world a little bit with various teams in various sports, meeting various uh, very, very interesting people who, who have massive influences on me. I then, um, I then went into my own practice. I set up in 2013 as I finished with uh, track and field. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much sums it up. Yeah. We're going into more detail, won't we, anyway, with other bits. Yeah, what teams or what, I guess, what sports have you worked with? Because I know you've got a fair bit of variety there. Yeah, well, I, I started in the world of bobsleigh and skeleton, um, moguls downhill, did a little bit of aerials. Um, not actually physically did it, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Just worked with them. Um, I've worked with uh, professional rugby, professional football teams, um, uh, speed skating, uh, which was in Canada, um, track and field. Uh, so a, f- a fair amount of different diverse type sports uh, and some of them I took on because they were a massive challenge but I wanted that challenge because I think that's really important it challenged me because when I was head hunted out to um to Vancouver in 2006 by Speed Skating Canada which initially I thought was a bit of a, was a bit of a joke being played on me um I I knew nothing about speed skating long or short track and that was both and and it became, it's an unbelievable sport to work in and to be around. And I knew nothing about it. So I was, not only was I going into a sport I knew nothing about, I was actually going in as the lead. So <laughs> it, was, it was a very interesting time, but fascinating, uh, fascinating learning. So, yeah, and that was my first. Um, so you asked about uh, Olympics. So that, Nagano was my first Games. Um, then I went to 2002 and 2006. So all three of those were winter games with Great Britain. Um, then in 2010, I went to the games with um, Canada, obviously in Vancouver, their home games. And then 2014, I held, did the holding camp with Canada for Sochi, but didn't actually go into Sochi. Then 2012, so I missed that. Sorry, 20, sorry 2010 was... Uh, Vancouver then 2012 obviously London mm. which we'll talk about in more detail because that was that was an amazing game then 2014 holding camp then 2018 uh, I didn't do 16 2018 in um, Pyeongchang so that's what six games yeah I think so yeah so that's that's interesting but Pyeongchang Vancouver um, were both with Canada mm. as opposed to Great Britain which was which was interesting um who were you with for the 2012 games, for the home games for us? So I was uh, the chief physio with track and field. So that was my role. That was probably the highlight of my career to date. I, I think it was, it was made all that much more exciting because I didn't expect it. It wasn't something that I would, I would have anticipated doing, which made it more exciting. But it made it a, a mountain to climb. I mean, it's a... I've always believed if you can work in track and field, you can work anywhere because it's so exacting and there's not a lot of room for, for maneuver. So, yeah, so I, I was fortunately headed into that role too, which was, uh, which was really cool. And um, I felt like I was climbing the Eiger every day um, because I realized what I knew, but I also realized what I didn't know. And so I spent a lot of time, as I did with speed skating, learning. And I learned from the coaches. I didn't learn from, didn't go to all the therapists to try to learn because I didn't really have any issues with how I would treat, but how I would rehab, how I would understand the needs and the, of the sport and the discipline was, was the thing that I had to learn. That's where I knew I'd be weak. Mm. And so I spent a lot of time with coaches, presenting my programs to coaches, making sure I periodized them well, making sure that what I put in them was going to help achieve their aims. And who better than going to the subject matter experts who are the coaches? Obviously, I spoke to colleagues and obviously I spoke to other people. But, you know, no one's going to tell me more about an 800 meter runner than the 800 meter coach of the top internationals in the country. So why would I not speak to that person? If that makes sense. So. 
that's one of the things perhaps I do differently is that I, I believe in going to where the subject matter expert is and learning from them, not the version of the version of the person that may have done it before. Not that that hasn't got some relevance, but that's an incredibly biased approach. I really want to know so I can make my own decisions about how I could apply it. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so that's it. And most of the games I've been to, I've been in, um, apart from one, but in, have been difficult roles where I've been responsible for not just athletes, but for a team and um, a team of therapists. And that brings with it its own challenges. And, um I know you're going to ask me about that too, but it's a it is it is an interesting um, area to be in, and when you're in that Olympic bubble in the village where you have responsibility, you're not only trying to treat athletes, but you're trying to manage your team and manage them so they can be effective with the athletes, and then you've got to manage the coaching team around and make sure that information is passed. Then all the people above you that are administering the whole setup to make sure that that doesn't impact on the athlete. So you're playing constantly a defense against getting, making sure information that doesn't need to be around and doesn't get to them. Mm. And at the same time, you're trying to optimize their, their performance. Um, so it's, it's a, an interesting, uh, interesting area. And it's a, it takes a certain type of person to be able to do that well. Um, and it's not necessarily being the greatest therapist or clinician on the planet. You've got to have other skills as well. And you certainly are allowed to have an ego, but you can't have it at the Olympics. That's got to be well packed away and disappear off. You know, you can't go bouncing your ego around the athletes because you're there for them, not the other way around. So it's it's an, it's interesting, and there's a lot of time spent in meetings for meetings for meetings. And although people say, yeah, we'll have another meeting to, for the meeting, because you'd want to be sure you've not missed a thing. And at 2012, where I had massive responsibility for a large team, both athlete-wise and staff-wise, I mean, I don't think I slept for the entire three weeks in the holding camp onwards because I was just making sure that, along with the chief medical officer, we didn't drop the ball. And that in itself was exhausting. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I always wonder is there'll be a lot of our listeners who – probably work full-time in a team or in a in a sport attached to a or a governing body of sorts um for like a clinician who's gonna potentially or is aspiring to do what you've done where you you head up a team in an olympic games you i know you've just alluded to quite a few of the traits there but what do people um what do people need to do or be to be effective as a clinician during those games how do they kind of adjust what their normal environment is to the uniqueness that is a games well it's a good question i i would say in my opinion um as i mentioned ego earlier you 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 can't have an ego to drive anything that you do it's not about you You, you've got to try and stay emotionally stable yourself and it's difficult particularly when an athlete is super talented or expected to do well but you've got to be able to keep balance. You've got to be able to be not go up and down like a yo-yo, which they're going to do. You've got to be stable. And it is hard to do, but that's one of the qualities you need. You need to be a seriously effective team player. You have to be able to accept being part of a team. And as part of that team, you have a role within the team. That doesn't mean you can't show initiative. It does mean, however, though, that you've got to remember that you changing the plan or you moving a direction doesn't just impact that one person that will could impact the entire setup so you can't work unilaterally um so being a really good team player showing that you have those types of skills are important the time to show your leadership is when you're in those types of meetings that's when you can direct the system a little bit and push it where you want it to go but once it's there the athletes the athletes have to see that solidarity that uh, that consistency of message and you've got to be able to get the job done, you know, and you won't get a lot of sleep. So you've got to be able to work under pressure, under duress, because you won't. And the athletes will be nervous. And they, it's their moment in time. You know, they, some of them may have spent eight years to get there, some four years, some longer. And this is their moment. And you've got to do everything within your power to ensure that you've discharged your duty of care to allow that athlete the opportunity to perform to their very best. If they do or they don't, that's fine, as long as you've done your bit. And 
you know, it, it's, it is difficult. And of course, we're human. We know we get carried away with it in that again. And it's great when somebody does well. But if you're drummed up and down like a yo-yo, giving it rooty toot when they've done brilliantly well, and then the next half it comes out and bombs, what are you going to do then? So, yeah, it's a real difficult one um, sometimes. But those types of qualities, you've got to be effective. You've got to be prepared to make decisions in a very short space of time. Um, you've also got to sometimes... Um, Give the athlete what they want rather than what you think might be right. Because if you're coming up very close to the event and somebody wants a certain thing for you to do a certain thing, then you've got to get on and do it because it's mentally more damaging to them by you saying, well, actually, no, I think you need this. You're with me. So sometimes, you know, whereas you wouldn't normally clinically not, not do that, you've got to be prepared at times to go, okay, if you want me to mobilize that foot, I'll mobilize that foot. Because that's going to make you feel better. Off we go. I don't think you need it, but that's not the point. Yeah, and I think I think probably the critical thing is is to not park your two cents and do it, but still say you don't need it. Is to just kind of at times just get on with it yeah. quietly. Get on uh, with it because they'll come back to you eventually and say, "I didn't really need that, did I?" And I'll say, "No, you didn't." But it doesn't matter. At that time, you did. They may just need that for their psychological well-being. They may need you to feel that because they've had problems with that foot potentially, say, as an example. And therefore, they feel better the fact that, you know, an hour before their call room or before their event, they that's what they wanted. They, they just needed that. That might be the switch. You're not going to do anything to them that's going to be of any, um, anything physically that's going to put them at any risk. But it, 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 for them, it matters. And sometimes therapists have a real difficulty in working like that. And again, if you remember it's about them, not about you, and you're there to support them and to provide them with whatever they need, that approach, you have to remember that. Um, uh, you know, there's a time when you can have those conversations and it's not at the Olympic Games, <laughs> you know? So um, it's like all things, the experience helps you with that. And, um, you know, you, you don't get a chance to blow the athletes. If their head goes, it's really, really hard in that bubble, in that intense environment to recover from it. So you just can't make the mistake in the first place. Does that make some sense? Yeah, completely. I think it's uh, um, you can hear the. I think you can hear the experience in all of your answers. I think there's a lot of things that you're talking about that I've definitely not considered before, and I think probably clinicians in sport may be the same as well. I think it's it's quite a unique environment, the Olympics, that maybe um, not everybody in sport gets to touch as a as a clinician or a coach either. No, you're right. It well, is it is interesting. Along the kind of same vein of supporting. Uh, Olympic athletes or, or especially track and field athletes I know you've been involved quite heavily with uh, with Altis performance out in Phoenix um, where did that kind of come from and and how did that develop over time your involvement with them well well Stuart McMillan who is their CEO and sprints coach um, Stuart and I go back a long way I think we met in the middle 90s and I think we met middle to late end of the 90s when we when I was doing some work with a number of different teams and I was working Stuart was working with the US bobsled at the time I think and I and I was brought in to as a consultant to help them out a little bit because I'd worked I started working with who then became their head coach down the line uh, a, an excellent bobsledder called Brian Scheimer and between I came in and started working uh, with them and met Stuart and we just hit it off pretty much straight away we just got on immediately and and have remained very, very firm and close friends ever since, really. And I've worked together over with many different athletes and many different teams over the years. Um, so when Stuart got involved, Stuart and I then, when did we, the next big thing was, I think, was when we were in Canada. I was in Canada, as you know, living in Vancouver from so six to 2010. And Stu was living out there as well at the time. He'd been in Canada for a lot of years. And so we came together then. And I brought him into the speed skating team to, for the games, specifically because he he brought some really good skills to bear with several athletes and knew some of our top sprint athletes uh, within long track. And and then he came over to the UK and was was taken on board by UK Athletics along with Dan Path, who I'd only met briefly then but didn't really know very well. Then I was then head hunted into UK Athletics. 2010 2011 so 
I picked up again with Stu, and I suppose that's where we started to really work closely and track together. And that's when I was very, very fortunate to work with Dan Path and start to get to know Dan uh, very well and several other really, really, really good people, um, Kevin Tyler and um, Derek Everly and uh, and Jerry Ramajida, who had come across from Canada too. And, um, you know, good coaches, good therapists. And, and, and I started to build that relationship with them at that time. And we worked together for a number of years. And so when they went across back to the States and set up the World Athletic Center, as it was originally called, along with uh, John Godina, uh, who was the sort of main man behind it back then, um, they sort of brought me in to sort of start to help inform the performance therapy side along with what they thought and what they were doing. And the three of those, Jerry, Dan and Stuart, are sort of sort of part of the founder members, you might say, of that. And I was sort of involved with it as well, but I couldn't put myself into that founder member. But I was certainly talking we were talking performance therapy back in the UK, back in 2010, 2011, and, and started to talk about it then. And so, you know, that's how it really started. So I then started to work alongside them, go out there and help them out, and started to um, – I was then helping on the performance therapy program as one of the guys who was, uh, who was involved in inputting it and started to mentor the med team out there. So that's really how my involvement started within – that setup and that's my involvement today still hmm. and you know I've, I've asked lots of people on the show their philosophy and uh, it can be quite a broad question at times but it can also produce some absolute gold at times um, when you ask people their philosophy to care or performance but you know experientially I've spoken or we've talked shop quite a lot in the past and I've seen you in action with your patients to see and um, and hopefully at times understand your approach and it's it's definitely a little bit different to what the traditional model that's taught um, would influence and tell practitioners to do in practice. Um, so I want to try and unpackage it a little bit so that the listeners can hopefully um, gain some of the insight that I've been fortunate to with you. Can you either kind of describe broadly or can we break down, I guess, firstly, how you order an appointment? So let's let's flow through it as like history assessment first. Um, and then we can hit the rest later. But what's your kind of approach or philosophy to getting a good history and getting a good assessment so you understand the athlete when they come to see you? Okay, well, let me that's, – that's a good question. Let me back, off, back up slightly from that. I think it's important to understand where I come from so you'll understand how I approach. So um, it, for many years, I would be working the way I was trained naturally. And we're trained as therapists very well in three or four key areas, generally reasonably well in pathology, cause and effect, post-operative care. The fourth area, which is the area I think we're the weakest, is the area of insidious onset. And in most cases, when you're dealing with athletes in a clinic, you're dealing with insidious onsets. They just got a problem and they're not quite sure why. So if we look at that, it was that area that I think I was finding it very difficult to, to get right. And I would be reading and reading and reading. And I did more courses to take a stick at, but I found myself becoming very sick at get, not getting it right still. They were getting better, but they weren't getting right. And, and it frustrated me. And so I realized that I needed to really rethink the whole idea of how we deal with an insidious onset problem. So the man who really light bulb moment me and i feel so fortunate to have met with him and to and to have had benefit of his time as professor dr vladimir yander and i think without his influence i don't think i would have changed my paradigm at all on thinking and thought and he just got me to teach me how to think outside the box and i'll give you an idea of what i mean because it goes straight to the question you asked me um i started to try to demedicalize this particular aspect and say okay if I don't know why they've got this particular pain or dysfunction, how am I going to address it? Just going through a normal process is no good. But I need context. So if, if I need to understand why, I first of all need to understand how is it supposed to work. So if I don't actually understand how it works in the first place, how do I know when, why it's not working? And if you don't do that, you get led by symptoms. And if you're led by symptoms and pain, you'll invariably not get it right. So 
you need to understand first, how does the body work? Once you get an idea of how it's supposed to work within that discipline or that action, if it's an athlete or whoever it might be, then what you've got to do is then start to build in the thing called bandwidth. So I'm taking that from the Altis stuff. That bandwidth came from Stu McMillan uh, to do with a bandwidth. And if you think about it, nothing's ever perfect. The body's never in a perfect aligned position. It doesn't exist. But, you, but it is a bandwidth around each area. So what informs the bandwidth is your understanding of that person or that discipline or the loading and the strategy for training they have will, and their age and everything else around them will give you an idea of the type of bandwidth you expect to see from top to bottom and bottom to top. So now you're building this bandwidth across the system. You're building a normality and a context of how the body should be working. Once you've done that, it becomes a lot easier to start to find out what isn't working. Does that make sense? Yeah. So if you understand what isn't working, you now have, here's what should be happening in my, in my opinion experience. Here's what is happening. So how do I get from what isn't happening to what ought to be happening? Not how do I treat that condition? No. How do I get from there to there? Because it will involve changing loading strategies, changing firing timings, changing tissue tension, tissue tone, jointment position, whatever, all of the things that we know as therapists. But if, you, if you're working to a symptom relief type method, which isn't necessarily wrong at some point within that process, so effectively that's where I, where I sort of start from. And I'll move into that in a minute about leveling the playing field. And something else I've learned over time to take that to the next level is that I began to realize that I actually don't have any of the answers, really, the body holds all of the answers. My job is to understand what questions to ask and when to ask them. So treatment to me is not an answer. It's merely another question. And I get an answer which helps me move on. And the body will take you on the journey through its ability to move forward. And you start to learn. We talk patterns. We can talk uh, changes in the way the system fires and how that alters through the chain. And whatever you do at one point will affect everything else, regardless of your philosophy. Whatever you input one area, you will affect the whole system. So you have to understand how that system, you want to affect it. How do I want this system to alter? Not how do I make that big toe move better, but how making that big toe move better, how does that affect everything else? So you need to understand how they communicate because you're going to start to play with that communication. So if you, if I give that as a baseline philosophy, does, I hope that sort of makes a bit of sense. Yeah, and I think that, that really succinctly uh, describes what I think I've seen, grossly speaking, about when I've seen you work with different patients or athletes as well. So, yeah, I think that does explain it really well. If I then take that, my questioning and the time I spend talking to them is helping me to establish that that understanding of them and their bandwidths and what they've been through and what sort of stress and strain their body's been through to give me some context of what I might be looking at, yeah? So that's what my initial subjective examination is doing, as well as me covering off all the, the right duty of care bases that I need to cover off and make sure I ask the questions that I know I need to have asked. But that's why I, I have the, the way I will work is I will spend that time and of you know I, I know you're, at, you're going to ask me a little bit later than that but that hopefully gets into that part now once i've done that once i feel that i've got a better idea then i i can contextualize it better so i can then narrow the field a bit because when you start it's a very wide area you're looking at and you're trying to narrow into a, you know into an area that you go okay i can look at that and then i say to myself well hang on the next thing to do now i've got this an idea in my head is physically i need to give myself a chance so what i will do initially is never try to treat the issue because i don't know where the issue is yet so what i need to do in order to make an assessment and use standardized testing for me to get a, a proper outcome not a false positive i need to level the playing field so i need to first of all make sure that the communication up and down the chains is working because if it's not working, it will all end up giving me the wrong answers. So I start 
at the pelvis because it's a central fulcrum, has three levers working on it, and they've got to work independently of each other. And then I move up and down the chain. I make sure that structurally it's all working. I then try to get an idea of whether things are timing. And at that point, I can then start to look for the problem, the fault. And it's interesting because I think um, of the clinicians that I know that um, share a similar philosophy to you in terms of understanding the whole body and not going straight to the, to the the site of the pain or the symptoms, different clinicians go in different orders. And, and we had Andy Barr on a little while ago, and I know he goes top to bottom, TMJ down, and some people go feet upwards. You know, you mentioned the kind of some of the sort of mechanics of the uh, the pelvis then, but What's kind of the main reasoning behind you starting in the middle and then going out? Well, because because all load uh, has to go pretty much through the sacroiliac region, through the pelvic region. So, and there's a number of different forces acting on the body, but the two critical forces we're dealing with are gravity pushing us down and vertical ground reaction force coming up through. And therefore, the whole reason for an SI joint and the whole pelvic area is to allow that transfer of load. So if it can't transfer that load, first of all, then we're in trouble. Now, I totally respect that there's many, many things will be affecting how that load, force load is transferred. And I'm a a fan of TMJ, absolutely TMJ jaw position, uh, cranial work, all of these things will affect it. You know, temporal regions will will mimic and affect the anomalies. So there are a number of different factors, but you've all got to start somewhere. I find if I level that, if I get that pelvis able to function, it may only function for that hour or so that I've done it while I'm looking at it, for instance, but at least then I can move up and down. If I get to the head, neck and realize, well, this, this is really not very good, then that might be where I end up spending my first part of my treatment because that's clearly influencing what's going on. And so I think as long as you accept that everything is part of the same whole and will have an effect on that, hence why you'll have people who will start at the feet. Some people will start, as you say, Andy will start at the um, at the TMJ. Say, I've always started century. Pelvis for me has always been my fascination. So that's where I've I've always tend to start and that tends to work fairly well for me um because don't forget most of the time you're assessing and standing and or lying and most of your treatment will be mostly lying down although i try to treat loaded if i can because often the problems come on when they're loaded and not offloaded so you've got to remember you'll see a very different system when you offload it than when you load it so the ability to look when it's in both areas is really important. And that sometimes might change. So for instance, I, I might look at the pelvis and it looks perfectly okay. So therefore I won't spend any time there in the early phase. I will then move down up and down the chain. And, and no, feet are critical. I mean, we walk around on them. So feet will have massive, massive influences on what's happening above. And because of the way gravity pushes down, I can. that's where the whole C-spine, upper C-spine, TMJ complex comes in because gravity is coming down through that complex. So these are two critical areas, again, that will, will affect what goes on. But, you know, we all um, – that's, that's hopefully answered your question as to why I would tend to start more centrally. Yeah, it sounds um, like, yeah, there's, there's definitely, I guess, artistic license as to – where you start and why but critically you need to have justifications and reasons for why you start where you start rather than just yeah. picking somewhere um, no totally right yeah. you've got to have a point in which you can understand how you read the system so i can read it better if i start there and i will reiterate it doesn't mean that there's always something wrong with it there might not be particularly if it's when it's offloaded so that i don't spend any time if i don't if everything looks relatively at that moment in time normal in parentheses you with me yeah um um, but if you don't understand how the tmj affects pelvis and affects the whole structure or how the first ray affects pelvis and the whole structure then you then you're going to get a difficulty so as long as you respect and understand that then then it's you know then there's not a problem really but if you don't get that then it becomes more difficult in my opinion yeah and i think one of the things i really want to talk to you about as well is um broadly speaking, is manual therapy because I've learned a lot of the 
the techniques, I guess, that I've applied to people from you um, while, after I finished training originally. And I think it's really interesting for people to know that you spend a massive amount of time on the history and even more time on the assessment. Your manual therapy skills are better than I think I've seen anyone's. But actually, you don't spend that much time there. It's very, very prescriptive, but it's very flexible in as to what you pick and why. Can we kind of can we talk about your philosophy around uh, manual therapy? Because I think um, having seen you work, we'll we'll get some pearls of wisdom out of this. Well, well, I hope hopefully. <laughs> um, well, I I. I I'm a firm believer in everything that I've done in my career that structure governs function. So, and which is a very osteopathic term. And I wasn't, didn't learn that from osteopaths. It just became, to me, became felt quite sensible and intuitively correct. Structure governs function, governs structure. So for me, it was really important that I was able to alter the structure. And when I talk to my patients about this, my athletes, I talk a bit about like a government, like central government is brain and information coming down. And the joints act like local government. So they can't change what's going on, but they can modify it. And so if the joint, which is going to take a lot of load, is unable to function normally, it will alter everything else around it. So it will alter the way the fascia works, the way the muscles will contract and fire, and the timing which again alters the loading strategy, which puts places more stress elsewhere. So for me, that ability to, again, level that playing field, know that the structure is actually doing what it should do within its bandwidth was really important. So that way I could see fairly dramatic change because as I, in, particularly in athletes, you've got to remember athletes have a central nervous system that's amazing. So they'll make changes really quickly, but they'll make changes positively and negatively with equal gusto. So you pretty much need to know where you're going to go and where the body seems to be leading you and trust in that. Um, Otherwise, you know, um, you, you're not going to get the type of outcome that you want. So it doesn't mean that I don't think fascia is critical or I don't think neural mobility is critical or I don't think um, various tones and tensions and timing are. But I think you've got to start somewhere. So for me, that's where I go structure. I'll then alter around the structure of the tissue moving up through where depending on where that's coming from. For example, you know, if you start to get lots of different restrictions at the knee and tensions at the knee, there's a very good chance that it, if, it's, if you feel it's fascial, that's likely to be more the hip fascia because the fascia is very different at the hip than it is at the knee. And then if you've got dysfunction to the first ray, you're going to have changes in the way the knee can function. So the knee is a poor bugger because it gets, it's in the middle of some very complex work from the hip and the foot and ankle. So <clears throat> things will alter. Understanding why they've altered are they altering because of the way that it's been loaded? Are they altered because of the injury or is the injury being caused because of the loading and then there's just protective response? So you're going to have changes in tissue, both from loading inappropriately and then changes because it's been then damaged. And it's understanding the differences between the tissue in protection, the, the symptoms that come from protection. And I would, I would probably say that in the vast majority of time, um, where there's no clear tissue damage, as in a tear uh, in the tissue or damage to tissue, that it's most of the people are in protective-based pain. So most of that pain is from a protective state as opposed from an injury state, uh, if that makes sense. So you, you need to fathom this and understand this, and that's where I – believe that the hands-on therapy where your ability to feel tissue, feel how, how it's moving, how it's mobilizing, how it wants to move, why is it not doing? My questions are always why, 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 why? What is obvious? I can see it or the patient's telling me. But why is it happening? So when I ask the question of the first ray, for example, and I mobilize the first ray, and suddenly there's a little bit better feeling of the foot-to-ground contact, but okay, so how do I maintain that? Well, there's some pretty critical muscles that I need to think about. So what are the muscles that will control that position doing? So what is my peroneus longus tibant doing? Because if they aren't functioning as a team, then my first ray and my first MPJ will not function normally, in which case that will have a massive effect through the chain. And then how well is this foot now stabilizing? So how is this midfoot stabilizing? 
once I've mobilized. It's no point mobilizing the structure and not understanding what then needs to happen to maintain it. So it sort of flows on, if that makes sense. Does, does, that's what I'm trying to say. It, it flows on. Once you sort of start, then the flow goes and you're moving through the system, looking at as the tissue responds and alters and they, okay, that's a good response. They like it. It feels better. It looks better. It's, it's functioning better. Okay, let's move along that chain. And it's interesting because I think people are taught to not move the patient around too much. You know, you should you should have a standing segment, you should have a sitting segment and a and a prone or supine segment to your assessment. And then your manual therapy or your treatment before you give some exercise is probably going to be horizontal. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the thing I learned from you and it might it might sometimes inconvenience my inconvenience my patients, but they don't seem to mind is that is we all know we should test retest but you definitely treat the body as a very live environment in real time i've noticed in that when you do an intervention you don't just then say how do you feel it's how do you feel how does this region work and now how does the whole global system work yeah and i retest don't i yeah totally well after you've done anything you can't know how effective it's been without a seeing whether that movement pattern is better whether when it loads up it's better and whether the patient feels that it's better uh, and so you can't know that if you don't retest and retest and retest. And arguably, you can't really effectively clinically reason the next phase if you haven't retested because you've made the assumption because it feels okay to you, it must be okay to you. Well, it doesn't matter if it's okay to me. It matters it's okay to them and the body's telling me it's okay. So no one's told the body it needs to work in these sections and these segments and these nice little clean boxes. Uh, because we don't work in nice little clean boxes. It's not, unfortunately, how it works. If it was, we'd all learn it all. We'd all educate ourselves brilliantly. We'd all do a fantastic job. But sadly, we don't all do a fantastic job. And none of us do a fantastic job all of the time because we sometimes don't know the question to ask. So, yeah, I think we've got to accept that, you know, we're trying to follow the journey. We're trying to ask good questions of the body to get to get input from it to know where to go next now that doesn't mean there can't be doesn't need to be any structure i'm not knocking the some structure but you've got to be a little bit careful that the structure doesn't overtake what's required so i go back to my first statement if you know what this system's meant to do how it's meant to be functioning within the context of that person's life and what they do it's much easier to know whether you're starting to move in that direction but if you don't know that and you treat it all the same way and keep implying the same to everybody then only a certain amount will get better but quite a lot won't and i think what i've witnessed with you is that the way your whole appointment or intervention from start to finish including the assessment with an athlete seems to work is it's constantly dialing into why the athlete's seeing you and what you need to try and fix or help them with. Whereas I think sometimes we, the constraint of how we traditionally do an appointment can become a huge distraction from actually achieving the best result that we could attain. And sometimes I think we do a good result with those constraints in place, but there's definitely some space or some margins that we could change to do a better job and, and just get back to the first and foremost principle of fixing the patient. Yeah, I think what I would do there, just to change that word slightly, we don't actually do any fixing. The body does all the fixing. We just do the facilitating. So they they do the fixing. You know, you've got to be humble in front of this system. It's far smarter than you are. Yeah. So I always bear that in mind. And I'm not trying to fix it. I'm just trying to facilitate it to function the way that it needs to function. And, um, and I think that that's also... Um, really important um yeah i mean you can't if you mustn't impose your will on it because you can't know better and this has taken me a long time a lot of experience to realize that and once you let go and realize it then then it works better now please bear in mind i'm talking in the field of purely insidious onset based issues i'm not talking about pathology disease post-operative care cause and effect where they've just fallen and landed on the point of their shoulder you with me i'm not i'm only applying this to that one sector because clearly there's 
you would manage things differently post-operatively. You still want to get everything functioning again, but you are going to have a slightly different focus at that particular time. Yeah, and I think like where the the, the grey area is the insidious onset. If someone's done their ACL, there's enough there's enough literature and there's enough um, there's enough research and there's enough protocols that we can experientially trust to guide quite heavily right. what we do. But I think this insidious stuff is a lot more grey and requires different thinking, like like you've been describing. Well, it's mechanism. So what I'm interested in is always the mechanism. What is the mechanism behind this problem? And even with an ACL, you're right, the ACL ruptured, but why did it rupture? Why did the L5 disc prolapse? Because if I don't answer the question to why, the surgeon's gone in and fixed it, brilliant. If I didn't know why it occurred, how do I know it won't occur again? So we still have to understand the mechanism. And I push this hard, as you, as you know. What is the mechanism of this particular? How do you see the mechanism of this injury? How do you see the, the pathway and the trajectory through the system? It will change after every input. And what's important to me is not what they feel like when they leave. They're going to hopefully feel better when they walk out the door for a number of reasons they need to. However, the, pretty much the most important info that I get from my my patient or my athlete is 48 hours later so when all the endorphins have left the system when they've settled back into their normality what has then changed what has remained changed it's not difficult to change something there and then at the time and make them feel a little bit better but that's great but it's no point if an hour later they're back to where they started so i need to know before i can even plan my program of exercise to support the facilitation I have done. So the hands-on is merely a facilitation into a better functioning position to allow specific bespoke exercises to do the role they're meant to do. Okay? It's not the answer to the question. The therapeutic treatment is not the answer. It's merely a stage within the process. So if I know after 24 to 48 hours, I can write a better program based upon my input from them, what I found, what I did, what they're now reporting back to me to write the program. In some cases, I can pretty much write the program immediately, but it, it is helpful to get that feedback so that, I'm, that I therefore know that that's actually where I need to focus because that's already self-corrected. The body's already dealt with that part, so I don't need to worry too much at the moment about that, but I do need to worry about this. So, And it's, an, it's a never-ending communication. You can't just have communication once a week or or once a fortnight, or once every whatever. That communication has to be back and forth in order for you to bespoke the program appropriately in order for it to work. I really, really, really hate generic-based exercise um, because, again, that's just, you know, let's get our 30%, we'll get better despite us type theory. Here and hope. But, you with me? So yeah. you need to do that. And, and prescribing exercise is not a simple thing. And that takes a lot of experience and time and understanding. Um, and again, I, I, as a lot of people, I, I could thank for the way they've helped to guide me a little bit over the years. Uh, I've usually travelled across the world to find them. But Yander again was was very influential in this about what we do and how it functions, and particularly with muscle timing, which was his big thing. And I've developed that now on myself, but not through any sort of um, research, but, but just learning on as I went and understanding the changes it can make by just altering a muscle timing. And within seconds on an athlete, you can make a significant change to load management. So, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm throwing out that term load management. I realize it's a, it's a much more complex thing than I'm using. So people out there who might be thinking, oh, you know, how does that happen then? I'm, I'm talking in, in global big chunks, big segments. Okay. I totally respect it's not quite that straightforward, but um, ultimately, Load is what we deal with all day, every day. We're designed to move. Therefore, because we're designed to move and because of the forces acting upon us, we are constantly dealing with load. And so however you see load, you've got to deal with it. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've, we, we keep kind of um, in literature sort of almost discrediting biomechanics at times um, for the causation of stuff. But then we don't always remember that the load that we experience from certain biomechanics are then converted into a cellular, cellular or nervous system reaction in our biology anyway so i think um you know i don't think it's one or the other i think it's just being able to zoom out and credit all of it 
in what we do. Well, it is. It is exactly right. And you've got to remember that we store energy in so many different areas of the body. Uh, and we store this potential to change the kinetic energy to allow us to move. And the restoration of all of these systems is really, really important. And some of it happens as a natural consequence of what you do, even if you don't always understand why or how it did it. Um, and that often happens with the body. And you shouldn't be concerned that you don't always understand every little thing that has changed because it's a pretty complex system. And even some of the smartest people in the world, and you and I have talked about one of the smartest therapists I know in James Moore. You know, I mean, James probably has more answers than most people, but I'm sure that James will probably say the same. He doesn't have all of them. because I don't think you can because it's, it's an ever-changing, ever-evolving system. Uh, and we're just scratching the surface. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I hope that answers that part of your question. Yeah, it's something that it's, it's, it's just a big topic that I really wanted to um try and unpackage with you because it's, it's definitely benefited me as a clinician um you know a bit of a segue but one of the things that i've always noticed when i've spent time with you is um there's always been athletes in your clinic uh and a lot of the time paying out of pocket to see you despite maybe being covered by an ngb or a professional sports team and i've seen equally quite a lot of occasions with you where a professional athlete or an elite athletes come to see you with their physio from their team or, or their governing body so you're obviously doing something right, but it, you know, how does the second opinion stuff work? You know, for you, when did it begin? And I guess like, how did you become effective or um, become a source not only for the athlete but the athlete and the physio at the same time? No, that, that's a good question. I, um, I, I care about the profession that I'm in. Uh, and I care about knowledge and information being passed to people. I think it's really important that those people who have something to say and have some experience are prepared to pass it on to others uh, because we don't evolve and move forward if people don't do that. Um, and secondly, um, you know, a, a lot of the time, particularly within particular sports, the physiotherapists that are working there are, are excellent within their sport, but they perhaps don't get the exposure, the wider, more eclectic exposure. So, for example, if you're if you're a football physio in the Premiership, you're pretty you know you're gonna be pretty damn good at what you do. But if you're not seeing lots of different things within other sports or or the general population, it's sometimes difficult. Um, to understand how that could be affecting your particular player. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing for me is I was, I think it started for me many, many years ago when a very good friend of mine was um, a head physio at a, at a big club. Um, and one of the things for me is, first of all, it's not about me thinking I know more than the other therapist that I'm, that has come in with the athlete. B, um, I don't want their job. So I'm, I think you've got to be non-threatening because people are working very hard in, in that end and it can become cutthroat. But I'm not interested in doing their job. I'm interested in support them. It's incredibly important when you're giving an opinion with the therapist in there that you always make sure the athlete knows that it is that therapist that's running the show. I'm just going to give my view. And I'm very careful about the words I choose, as you've experienced, and I make sure that the, I build the confidence with the therapist that's with the athlete because it doesn't do anybody any good creating a dependency on you. And it certainly doesn't do your reputation any good by doing that. It's not what you're there to do with a second opinion. You're there to try and help the therapist work out the problem that they may not be seeing and help the athlete to move on. But it's that therapist that's going to move that athlete on to the to the final outcome, which builds both their credibility with that athlete and then within the rest of the players or, or athletes in that club. And it also builds your reputation because they'll feel confident and comfortable to come to you knowing that you'll be supportive and helpful and hopefully not make them feel any lesser. Because I've, you know, we all of us, all of us, when we're with, other people with experiences that we don't have, we can all be made to feel a bit stupid. Well, that's not the idea. The idea is to be supportive and to assist and to help and to try and find if there's something that you may see that they didn't see. 
And that doesn't mean they're not good. It just means you're looking at it from a different approach. That's why they're with you. And because I don't think in the main like the rest of my, the majority of my colleagues, it means that I'm, they are going to get a different view, as you've seen. Mm. They're not going to get another view that's just a bit more experienced or been better well read. Um, and that doesn't mean that that view isn't valid. Of course it is. But by the time people get to me, it's because it's not working. So if it's not working, it's not going to, unless you change the approach, it's going to keep not working. So, so I, I really enjoy that. I really enjoy allow, you know, giving whatever I can, whether it's a little or a lot to the, to my colleagues when they come with the athletes. And I really go out of my way to make sure that, that the athlete doesn't think that they've missed something. It's really important that what I've just said there, it's important to just go to, to make sure that you keep the athlete, that the, the therapist in the forefront and you're behind them supporting. Don't step into the forefront that could potentially cause a rift between that therapist and that player or that athlete. Um, and so that's, that's the attitude I try and take. Um, I, and I try to show the say show the sport. I think you've seen me do that though, haven't you? Yeah. I just, I think you've described it really well and I've always been curious about it because it's, it's easy to wrongly assume that, um, the second opinion is because a physio can't fix the problem. I think, you know, what I've seen is that there's, that there's an interruption in the thought process that needs to happen from an alternative. And, and I, I've always been curious as to how you personally, um, navigate the delicacy of the interpersonal relationships between you, the athlete, and the athlete and their physio, and also your relationship with their physio. Because I think you 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 don't want to um, you don't want to loosen the bolts on their wheels so that when they get back to their club, totally. the, the, their physio is implementing a plan that you've they trust that you've helped them with, but they don't trust their physio anymore to do it. I think you, you've got to be really conscious of not shifting. Um, respect yeah. and trust and I've always been aware that you delicately do that but just not known quite how sure and if I'm going to write a program then I'll write the program send it to the physio and let the physio integrate that program with other things they're doing and same with S&C I'll, I'll talk to the S&C guys and give them my 10 penneth and let them change the load so it, the, the input eventually goes through their therapist so their therapist will give them the programming and the athlete doesn't need to know where that program came from. It just needs to know that the program is helping because it's not about, it's not about me with them. It's about that relationship that's really important. And I would hope other people, if it was, if I took them for second opinions would do exactly the same thing because it's paramount that you maintain that integrity of that relationship. Same with dealing with coaches, you know, don't start telling athletes, if you take track, what they can and can't do before you spoke to the coach. If you really want to upset coaches, do that. You know, your role is there to provide information and to, to provide an opinion to the right people at the right time for them to make decisions. There's a reason we're part of a support team. It's because we're supporting them. <laughs> we don't run it. So it's something, again, that we occasionally get wrong. And even I, to this day, have occasionally go, oh, crikey, I shouldn't have said that. And I'll be rushing to find the coach. So I tell the coach what I've done before the athlete does. And two things happen there. The athlete is that the coach is able to put it back in its box and B, they, you know, that is the fact that they're already pre-warned, but it is important to do that because um, that's not what you're there to do. And I think that's builds good relationships going forward. And so what then people then are much happier to bring more people to you for another opinion if they're finding they're just not quite getting past the finish line or they can't get round the hurdle, you know. And I'm only seeing them once or twice, and then that's it. And um, the therapist says, oh, okay, now it's moving in the direction I wanted it to. Great, and off they go. Um, and and that's, that's for me, I, I get great pleasure in that because the athletes come where, now where they want to be. The therapist has now got a bit more information. There's been influence, which is great, which means they will hopefully influence others at their, in, in their club. And so you've, in your tiny little way, you've maybe moved it on a little bit further. And that, for me, is, is, is really, really important. Um, because if we, as I said at the beginning of this talk, if we don't 
pass on the knowledge and the information in a way that can be is practical and, and we're able to utilize it, then we're not going to balance this whole um, issue with how evidence pushes us and how pragmatic evidence pushes us. Um, and I come back again to I'm talking about the insidious onset area. It's really important that people understand that. I'm not talking about physiotherapy or physical therapy, osteopathy, chiropractic per se. I'm purely talking about that particular uh, area. And I think it's interesting. I mean, it's a real luxury, I think, to be able to go and observe a second opinion appointment. Not, I mean, not everybody practically will be able to do this, but I think being present while you've got a highly skilled clinician and their athlete and another highly skilled clinician bounce ideas back and forth, talk about what's worked, not worked, and then given alternatives, you get so much more perspective in those appointments as somebody um, looking in as uh, than I think you can get anywhere else in your own learning. I think it's the most valuable thing I've, I've ever oh. taken from an experience. No, you're so right, Andy, because we all know when I've worked with teams, we get sucked in. We try to step back as far as we can and see the big picture. But at some point as the treating therapist within that club, you're going to get sucked in. And the minute things start to get behind you, it's impossible. And that's where second opinions are so useful because that particular person giving the opinion has that wider picture again. They don't have the weeds, so they can see a bigger picture. Something you may have thought about and dismissed as not being relevant at the time may now be relevant, but because it's behind you, so to speak, you can't see it. And you're under pressure. Hey, let's not be unrealistic here. When you're working in a professional club, there's a massive amount of pressure on you. So, you know, it's a very difficult environment. And so sometimes it's nice to have somebody who doesn't have that same pressure just to look at the big picture again. And I, I suppose that's what I do a lot of. And people I know who do a lot of it too are the same thing. It's to give that wider, greater approach. Um, and you go, often the therapists go, oh, of course. Yeah, Dan, we thought about that a while ago. And, oh, yeah, that's great. And suddenly they're now on, they're on the same trajectory as you are anyway. And it may be as little as that. And sometimes they're not. And you have to sort of take them on a different journey. But the fact that they're with their athlete or their player shows that they're interested in the second journey. Otherwise, why would they come? I mean, there's other reasons they may have come, admittedly, but I'd like to think of the more purist side of things. So uh, It's definitely something I've taken enormous value out of. And and I think it what you said earlier in your comments then, it kind of looped back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation where you are ultimately just putting the athlete first. And like you said, you're the support team to them. And I think it's a it's a it's a really good example of where that's functioning smoothly when you get to witness those style of appointments um gordon i can't thank you enough for coming on today mate and having a, a catch-up off air and also coming on and doing a podcast with us um is there any kind of closing thoughts or have you got anything coming up people should look out for or places to follow you Oh, gosh. Well, I'm I'm a bit of a technophobe, a bit of a philistine when it comes to social media, which I get told off on a regular basis from the rest of my, my colleagues within the practice. But um, I am doing, trying to do more and more uh, teaching. I'm, trying, I'm writing a number of courses based upon the type of philosophy that I've been uh, discussing with you today, Andy. And, and I've also now sat down and started writing a book based upon, again, my philosophy and how I see things. I've realized pretty rapidly that I'm a pretty crap writer. So I'm probably just going to dump everything down on paper that I can think of and get somebody far smarter than me to structure it and uh, <laughs> make it sound almost intelligent. Um, but I will be writing as I speak it. So I, it's not designed to be lots of um, a technical jargon. It's trying to link into using words and phrases and and that people will understand and relate to so that they can actually at least try to apply some of the thought process to go, oh, okay, that's interesting. I'm a bit stuck there. I'll, try, I'll think about that. And, and as the last thing I'll say on that is that you know how much I don't like techniques and teaching techniques. If you understand how to think, you can work out what needs to be done. And if you can work out what needs to be done, then you'll get it done. Um, 
if you go and learn techniques, all you do is have a presentation and then apply a number of techniques to it. And that's not what we should be doing. You know, it's really important to me. I hate teaching anyone a technique. Work it out. If you've worked it out, you can do whatever you want to do. How do you think the techniques got there in the first place? As long as they're safe and there's no contraindications to them, get on with it. Mm -hmm. And I make up lots of stuff. And I put money on the fact that all the effective therapists out there in the main, within this world and within this area, will be doing the same thing. Because then you've thought about it. And I can't stress that enough. Think about what you're doing. Work out where you think you are. Work out where you've got to be. And then work out how do I get there. Yeah. And I think that becomes more apparent anyway, if you think in that way. It becomes much more apparent and it's much more interesting and fulfilling and, and, and it keeps your enthusiasm. You know, I'm, I've been doing this a long time. I'm 61 now and I don't feel any different about it than I did when I first qualified. Difference is now I actually, people I treat do actually occasionally do better. (laughs) (laughs) Whereas back then no one got better. Well, that's um i think that's a bit humble but um it's a hell of a i mean you've had you've had a hell of a professional journey i think and um more diversity than i think uh, myself and a lot of other clinicians could hope to um have in their careers probably well it, i think it has informed me quite a lot and i take all the experiences i have in life and experiences i've had uh with the, i've been very fortunate with the teams i've been with i've i've done so many things i've i've done i have been so fortunate and I use those experiences to try to help me to communicate better with my patients, with my with the people, with the people I need to interact with. And, you know, we all know communication is crucial and uh, it just helps you to do that. And to stay humble, just stay humble. You know, at the end of the day, you need to be humble, um, I think. Um, other people will, will have an opinion of regardless. Some will have a great opinion, some won't. And I think if you stay humble, you're more likely to do a better job than if you really think you've got it all cracked because you don't get the chance at the elite end to get it wrong because the cost of you getting it wrong could be their ability to perform on that day. And if this is the final at the Olympic Games and you got it wrong, that could affect that performance ad- adversely. I would never say that what I've done has made them perform better because that's an arrogance. But I think we can certainly take from the performance. And I don't think, I think that's, that I, I have seen happen. But whether we've actually been responsible for a better performance is very difficult to know. But the athlete knows that. And they'll always say, if they believe you've made a significant impact on the way they perform, they will, they will say it for you. They will do that. And they'll validate but, it for you. Yeah. They will. Absolutely right. Yeah. So you don't need to concern yourself with that. Just concern yourself with doing the very best you can do, knowing that there's always so much more to learn. Well, Gordon, thanks, mate. I um, It's always good to catch up with you and appreciate you coming on and, and sharing the sort of the benefit of your wisdom over the years of, uh, of being effective in the field. And um, yeah, appreciate the appreciate the conversation as ever. No, great. Thanks, Andy. I'd like to thank Gordon A for coming on today's show and sharing the benefit of his clinical wisdom, but also B on a personal note for mentoring myself and definitely a few other physios I've met along the way clinically. He's a very knowledgeable guy, as you've just heard, and he's a very effective clinician, but he's very generous in how he passes on that experience and knowledge to others. So big thanks for him for everything he does. Next episode, I have performance consultant Pierre Barreau coming on who has a huge amount of experience supporting football or soccer teams globally in different leagues and countries. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for supporting the Informed Performance Podcast.